This podcast covers mature, intense, morbid, and sometimes just scary stuff. Listener discretion is advised. How do EMTs handle a high-intensity job where the lives of others are on the line every day? We go straight to the source on 30 Morbid Minutes. This is the podcast where we cover topics, people, places, ideas, and more of a morbid, macabre, dark, and downright grisly nature. I'm Elise Willems. I'm Jessica Vasami. And today, we are doing something a little bit different for today's episode. We actually have our first guest joining us. Yeah, this is super exciting. It is. I've always wanted to bring a guest on, and I'm so happy that it is, uh, who is it? Your friend. Yeah, and this is sort of a long time coming. We've talked about this. Um, my friend Sean, who is a former EMT, he hasn't been a practicing EMT for almost a decade, I think. But I have talked with him in the past where he's told me so many interesting, dark, and really, um, you know, stories about things that I never considered uh, that an EMT, an emergency medical technician, would have to face in that job and in that field. And I've talked with you, Jessica, and you've been like, I have have a ton of questions too. Yeah. And and even questions that are maybe you would think about or you wouldn't think about. Like, of course, there's there's the common questions of like, what have you seen? What have you dealt with before? And then there's like the kind of um, intense philosophical questions of like when you've been around so much pain and hurt and even death, like how does that affect you as a human being moving on through your day to day? You might be the the last person or that someone is with before they die. Exactly. And that, yeah. if I, if that were to happen to me and I were just to go home afterwards, I just, the, me as a human, this is why I'm not in this field. I don't think I could deal with that kind of thing. So no, it takes a lot. And there's also a lot about that field that I think we don't realize there are certain protocols and standards. And I'm always surprised to learn the things that he tells me he had to do or couldn't do in that job. For sure. But without further ado, let's just get to, to talking to Sean and asking him these questions. Let's do it. Sean, thanks so much for joining us to talk about your past as an EMT. Yeah, of course. Pleasure to be here. We're stoked to have you. Uh-huh. You left the high-paced career as an EMT and now you work in gaming? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I stopped the uh, illustrious career of emergency medical technician back in 2014. So I'm almost coming up on uh, 10 years sober from blood and guts for the most part. (laughs) We don't like to hear that on this podcast. (laughs) I still dabble on occasion, but mostly just in the media that I consume, not in the uh, actual like daily interaction with blood and guts. Yeah, I guess first off for kind of us and then anybody listening that doesn't know what is an EMT? Like, what do they do? Sure. Great question. Um, So EMT is, uh, it stands for emergency medical technician. I think always important to define the term. Um, And an EMT's job is basically to respond to medical emergencies and try to, uh, you have like the scales on one hand, it's like you want to try to help this person out as much as you can. And on the other hand, you've got to also get this person to a hospital where they can do more than you can do in the field. So you're always kind of balancing those two things. Like, what do we, what do we want to try to correct right now? Like, if there's really intense bleeding, we want to immediately try to stop the bleeding. Uh, but you know, assuming that they're not bleeding out, if they have some like a broken bone, like I can't make a cast in the back of an ambulance, so we need to get them to the hospital. So, you are just constantly doing the risk reward of the emergent in the field uh, solutions to people's emergency healthcare problems versus sometimes the, the best medicine you can administer is just your foot on the gas pedal. Just, yeah, try doing whatever you can to keep them alive and okay until they get yeah, to the Yeah. There's hospital. like a, there's like a bang buck reward of, of what you can do in the field versus what they just need to be in a hospital to do. Yeah. So like speaking to that, what can you do in the field or what are you required to do in the field? Um, that's a great question. Uh, so the main, like the thesis of this entire podcast is basically going to be, it depends, <laughs> right? <Yeah>. Because <laughs> so not only is every call different, every patient is different. Sometimes the physical truck that you're on is different and it's laid out different. So the answer is always going to vary, but also there's no standardized national 
emergency medical system. It's very one-off. Like every state has different protocols. Cities and counties have different protocols. So you might you might cross a city line and you have to unhook one IV and hook another IV up because Damn. this one medication you were giving the patient's not actually like legally approved for administration in the next county. Wow. So it's it's that gets, and oh that feels silly kind of it's it's so much worse on the East Coast, which is where I learned because I so I started being an EMT in New England where states are incredibly small. You can in six hours you can go through like twelve states if you just mm-hmm. drive around in circles. On the West Coast, you can drive for eight hours and still be in the same state. So you don't have to worry about like changing state lines quite as much as you do on the East Coast, mm-hmm. just because the states are much bigger. Uh, mm-hmm. But it is a lot to keep track of for sure. And there's certainly a lot of interesting scenarios where um, the difference in protocols that are state or city based can cause many EMTs to disagree about what the best thing to do for a patient is at a at a given point in time. Oh, geez, that's stressful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, <laughs> maybe like maybe that's maybe that's the thesis. Maybe that's yeah. the thesis. It's stressful. <laughs> that's, yeah. <laughs> this whole thing is so stressful to me. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, you're also an angel, so. Do you feel like it requires a certain type to get into this line of work then? Like what drew you to this job? Yeah, there's actually so there's definitely a certain kind of person that thrives in the job. And I think a really unfortunate thing is some people might think, oh, I'm great at that. I handle high stress. I'm good around blood and guts, all that kind of stuff. But then people will go to school. They'll like become an EMT. They'll take, um, you know, there's different care provider levels of EMT. There's uh, EMT basic, EMT advanced an EMT paramedic. Um, and each one requires progressively more uh, formal classroom education, you know, practical time spent in ERs and with like doing ride-alongs with other ambulance services and things like that. And people will go through all the training that they need. And most of it's classroom training and most of it's like textbook training. And then you go, you sit for a test and you get nationally certified and then you get your license in the state and then you go do it. And that first day, that's when like you punch in, you work your first day after you've gotten a job as a newly minted emergency medical care provider. And that's when you find out if this is the right job for you. Because oh, a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of people hit that first day and they see their first gunshot wound oh. or maybe it's even a slow day and they just hear a lot of horror stories from the, the old timers that are sitting around, you know, waiting for calls to come in in the rec room or whatever. And a lot of people, that's when they realize I have made a huge mistake. Is oh Do you know God. if there's like a statistic of here's how many people that after that first day drop out or quit or? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm sure there are stats about that out there, but mm-hmm. they're like, for sure, there are people that I was in EMT class with that I, you know, we, we all passed our test together and we high fived. We're like, cool, we're going to go out there and save <laughs> lives. And I saw them on the streets for like a couple days after we graduated and then never again. Yeah. And I'll, I'll like look him up on LinkedIn and I'm like, he's a IT systems analyst now. And I'm like, all right. Yeah. So it wasn't the right call for him well, for sure. I read that the average career span of an EMT is five years. Is is that t- tied to just how intense the experience is? Or is it something else you think? Uh, my suspicion would be, again, like not knowing too much about that specific stat. My My intuition would be that a lot of it has to do with the intensity of the job. But again, if you've done it for two years, five years, seven years, 10 years, doesn't seem like it's much different. Once you've seen everything, you've kind of seen it all. Um, mm. The reason, at least the reason that I left emergency medicine was almost exclusively based on uh, how criminally low the compensation is and uh. for the amount of work that you do. So, I mean, you're working a lot of places you do like 48 hour shifts, which I mean, you don't have to do that. A, a, a lot of people like those longer shifts, but you're working very long shifts. You're working very stressful shifts. Sometimes you're working overnights and you're trying to like match, you know, sleep and seeing your family and doing all this other stuff. And the pay is just really, really low. Like when I moved from New England to Los Angeles and I was an EMT in L.A. County and Orange County, I moved with, you know, four years of 911 experience. I had worked on like a NICU transfer truck, which is like some of the most high stress, like patient transfer kind of things you can do. And I spoke pretty passable medical Spanish at the time, which is, you know, highly coveted amongst LA care providers. And they said, oh, oh, I was also uh, an American Heart Association certified certified CPR instructor. So I could help recertify the other EMTs to make sure that their CPR certifications were current. So I was I was the golden goose of hires. 
And I shopped around at a bunch of different ambulance companies in the Los Angeles area. And the best offer I could get was $15 an hour. Oh my God. That's and you've got people's insane. lives in your hands. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's something I never understood is that you guys are literally saving people's lives, but just are not compensated fairly. I don't get it. Nobody's in it for the money. You know, that's it doesn't, I feel I get that. That doesn't matter though. You still, it's, we need people like you. But what to if help there us. were a bunch of rich EMTs and you're, yeah. you're bringing somebody into the ambulance, fingers covered in gold rings. It's just, he can't even lift someone because he's just weighed down in his yeah. gold. So I think a really interesting thing is it's not hard to be an EMT or to pass the class and it's not hard to like the actual skills you have to do are very low tech there's not a lot of math there's not a lot of thinking involved uh, because EMTs operate from a very protocol driven place you do what the protocol says to do you're, mm -hmm. you're never thinking what should I do for this problem you're thinking what am I supposed to do for this problem because it's written down in my protocol book and eventually you memorize it. Right. But you know, for bleeding, stop bleeding. It's very, you're almost like a car mechanic, right? Like if a 1982 Dodge challenger, you know, does X thing, the mechanic knows that Y thing is the solution for it. The difference between a very good EMT and an EMT that, you know, passed with the minimum passing requirements are like night and day, but there's no, they don't do a lot differently in the field, right? So I, some of the smartest medical professionals I've ever worked with started as EMTs and some of the dumbest medical professionals I've ever met stayed as EMTs their entire lives. Mm -hmm. And like I've met EMTs who I wouldn't let them do CPR on my dog if it had died two weeks ago because <laughs> I just, I just don't trust that they're going to render good care uh, because they're, because they don't have like the analytical, um, sort of like diagnostician brain that you would expect from like, like house, right? Like, like a, like a doctor that's like really good at diagnosing stuff. A lot of EMTs, they show up and they're, they're just thinking in that, you know, for bleeding, stop bleeding for broken bone, splint bone. And that if they do encounter something that sort of jars them out of that protocol driven approach to it, they, they don't know how to handle it because they're just a textbook EMT and they're not actually thinking about what's the underlying, uh, you know, bodily process and function that's causing this elevated heart rate or this, you know, uh, cardiac dysrhythmia or any of those things. And they can't think through the systems underlying things to diagnose what's actually going wrong. Some EMTs can, but they still both get paid 15 bucks an hour. Yeah. Well then that's, yeah. So that brings us to another question we have, which is what is the difference between an EMT and a paramedic and then a doctor and a nurse now, because now, now you're really messing with my brain. Cause now you're saying there's two different kinds of EMTs that are just going by the book. And then people that are like, well, what about this underlying? Cause I had an EMT experience where they understood what my underlying situation was. And I really appreciated that from them. Yeah. And do you, do you remember an example of that, Sean, what you're speaking to where you were in a situation and you had that diagnostic analytical approach that mm -hmm. you feel like sometimes doesn't exist. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So two part question. First answer, what are the different care provider levels? Uh, so pre-hospitally, it's almost exclusively limited to EMT, EMT advanced and EMT paramedic. They went through a renaming scheme like 10 years ago. So that's what it's currently called. It used to just be called EMT basic. Then there was EMT intermediate and then it was paramedic and paramedics weren't called EMTs because paramedics are better than EMTs. Uh, <laughs> but now it's EMT dash P for paramedic. So you've got your EMT, EMT advanced, EMT paramedic. Okay. Uh, the difference is that as you go up the scale as a care provider, you gain access to new tools and new interventions, right? Like EMT basics cannot start IVs. They're just not allowed to do it. It's not a skill they're taught. If you have an ambulance that has two EMT basics on it, a lot of times that so it, ambulances are usually called trucks. You'll say, oh, it's a basic truck or it's a paramedic truck or it's an, an intermediate truck or whatever. So we can drive over here and provide emotional support. Is is that the, the basic? <laughs> no, no, no. Can so, they do? So it's actually there's a common misconception that because EMT basics are called basics, that they are a, a very low tier like emergency, like first responder. Mm -hmm. But the truth of the matter is, is that the basic has like 99% of all the important tools that everybody else has. You you don't gain a ton of tools as you go up that are super useful pre-hospitally. Like a paramedic can start an IV and they can give you morphine to 
like, you know, address your pain. If you have something going on that's like causing crazy nausea, they can give you a super strong antiemetic like Zofran or Reglan that'll stop you from vomiting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, which pre-hospitally, if you're trans, if you live really urban and it's you know your transport time is five minutes, it's not even worth the time it would take to start the IV and push an anti-emetic drug. If you live more rural, that's where paramedics make really great first responders because you could be looking at a thirty-minute plus transport time to the nearest hospital, and then you actually want to be able to get a lot of those different interventions on board to start assisting patients with their issues. But for the most part, when you call an ambulance, if two MT basics hop off and they're well trained and they know what they're doing. They're going to be super effective for 95% of your average 911 calls because it's going to be the basics. It's going to be stopping bleeding. It's going to be, you know, maintaining good uh, cervical spine stabilization in the event of a head or a neck injury. Um, you know, heart, all that stuff, stuff. That that's all basic stuff. Okay, so then I think the people that found me actually gave me an IV, so I don't think that they were basic then. They, they must have been at least EMT advanced if they started an IV. Yeah. But most likely yeah. they were paramedic. Okay. Uh, so you guys are in Los Angeles currently, which means that Los Angeles Fire Department runs 911. They do have what's called a mutual aid agreement with a lot of private ambulance companies. So if LA Fire Department is very slammed and they can't get an ambulance there to be the first responder on a 911 call, they can farm that out to a private company. Uh, and then you can have a private company. The biggest one out there is AMR. They're kind of in every major city. They're kind of all, all over the country. Uh, I think they're actually in a lot of other countries as well. So they're the biggest private ambulance company in, in the world, as far as I know. Um, so you can have an AMR ambulance come if you call 911. Nine times out of 10, it's going to be LA Fire. Uh, and I believe LA Fire ambulances always have paramedics on board, at least one paramedic. Yeah, I mean, I do see a lot of situations where there's an accident or something and you always see fire trucks show up and and it wouldn't necessarily be something that would maybe relate to that. So I, I feel like you're uh, on the money there. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting overlap between fire and EMS. Uh, very, I don't even think fire departments nowadays will hire you if you're not at least an EMT. Uh, so for the most part, every wow. firefighter is also an EMT. Most firefighters go on to get their paramedic because a lot of times they are the first ones to a scene. And it's just nicer to have that higher level of care provider on site. Oh, this is really good to know. Yeah. <laughs> We got a little sidetracked there, but do, do you remember any specific situations where you were like, if I hadn't thought about this in a different way, the situation may have gone completely wrong? Or if I hadn't known that underlying like uh, case or had the ability to give an analytical perspective on this, it maybe wouldn't have worked out as well? Actually, yeah. This is probably one of the most common answers you'll get from EMTs with this question is a lot of times will be called for... It's, it's always really interesting. When you get the call, they will list a chief complaint, but how accurate is it is always up for debate. I've been sent on a lot of calls for sick person, and you're like, okay, I don't know how helpful that is. I assume if you called 911, the person is sick in some way, right? Um, mm-hmm. But a lot of times, you'll get like dispatched out for drunk person, right? Those are usually your late night calls, and you're like, it's going to be a fall, or it's going to just be maybe like alcohol poisoning or something related to the fact that this person has overindulged this evening. And you don't get a lot of drunk person calls at 7 a.m., right? They're always 2 a.m. That's that's usually when you're getting these calls. And there's actually um, very frequently, and it's to the point where when I get dispatched or when I got dispatched uh, for drunk person, in the back of my head, I was always, is it actually a drunk person or is it, uh, a diabetic who's in the middle of like a blood sugar crisis because they can uh. actually exhibit almost identically. And most care providers that have been doing it for a long time will have the same thought. It's very, very common that somebody who doesn't know enough about the signs and symptoms of either um, a high blood sugar crisis or a low blood sugar crisis will present a lot like a drunk person. Damn, that's a great example. Yeah, like if you haven't been around diabetics a lot or drunk people a lot, or both, you might easily mistake them. So a lot of times you'll show up and you're like, I just got to wrangle this drunk guy and find where he yeah. hit his head. And you know, if he, if, if he broke his leg or sprained it or whatever, and then you sort of interact with him a little bit and you're like, oh, let's just, let me just check your blood sugar real quick. Like, do you have a history of diabetes? A lot of people are undiagnosed diabetics and are walking mm-hmm. around and don't know it because they're just, you know, medically non-compliant. They don't go see the doctor enough to, you know, get, get screened and catch it early. So a lot of people find out they're a diabetic when somebody calls an ambulance for them because they look drunk to wow. an outsider. So is that always on your mental checklist of those like drunkard calls of I should check that first? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
It's it's and and there's a lot of people that that might not do that one extra step because they might mm-hmm. have not have paid as much attention during EMT classes about you know diabetic crisis. Uh, yeah. Okay, I'm curious not to get distinctly morbid, even though that's the subject of this podcast. But <laughs> I am kind of curious situations around like what happens, what's the protocol when you do have a patient that unfortunately like dies, you know, on your watch, like sure. Yeah, do you, you know, can you pronounce that death? Do you need to keep performing CPR until you get to a hospital? Like, how does that work? So once again, the answer is it depends. Uh, it, <laughs> it's, it's very interesting. This one varies a lot by state. So I'll try to uh, feel free to re-ask any parts of the question that I forget about. But protocol for when you have a patient die, it depends on if they die on scene before you've taken... Uh, before you've like taken the patient into your care. Um, it depends on if they die in, in route and transport. It depends on what city or state you're in. Um, there's So remember how I mentioned that all EMTs operate within a certain set of predefined protocols. Those are written by uh, a doctor who's called your medical director. Every EMT company, every EMT agency operates underneath a doctor's medical license. You are operating under their license. So technically, you're you're following a doctor's orders every time. But okay. a, a, essentially, what happens is a doctor writes out orders that says anybody working in the field, pre-hospitally in emergency care, when they encounter a patient with a broken leg, you can do X, Y, or Z. Um, and you know that's based on if you're an EMT basic, you can splint the leg. If mm-hmm. you're an EMT intermediate, you can splint the leg, start an IV, and push fluids. You know, mm. just like a normal like saline drip. If you're a paramedic, you can mm-hmm. splint the leg, you can start an IV, you can push fluids, and you can add morphine for pain management. Mm-hmm. So okay. as long as you're doing that, the doctor has written standing orders that can always be followed by anybody operating under that license. Um, okay. So that's kind of how the protocols are set up. Now, it varies by state what doctor protocols are allowed to be established pre-hospitally for the, uh, you know, like the the emergency responders. Um, when a patient dies uh technically you're you're usually not allowed to pronounce anybody dead as as a first responder Mm -hmm. that varies slightly based on jurisdiction i'm sure just because everything does i don't know of any emts or paramedics that have the ability to like pronounce anybody dead that usually has to happen by uh, a state medical examiner or doctor to hospital did you ever shout at anyone sean what's your jurisdiction (laughs) <laughs> or you don't have the jurisdiction, like in a really cool way. No, sadly, uh, I, I, I was much more timid when I was a I was timid when I dealt with uh, other care providers because I never wanted to overstep my boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I was actually not that timid at all when I when I was like advocating for patients to like their family members or other care providers. I, I just like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's because you know me quite well. <laughs> yeah. So. When somebody dies, I can give you an example. I can even tell the story about the first person I had die on my watch. Um, I would love to hear it. Yeah. Sure. Don't be so um, eager, Jessica. Jesus. I just, this is it's fascinating. It me. is fascinating. But yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Tell me everything. <laughs> <laughs> 30 Morbid Minutes is brought to you by Me Undies. Jess, it is no secret that we love spooky things, we love spooky season, but. We also love cozy season. We sure do. And lucky for us, they overlap. You know what thing is keeping me cozy these days, especially in the butt area? What is it? <laughs> me undies. <laughs> yes, um, they're about comfort and style with the coziest and comfiest undies and loungewear ever. Yeah, I didn't know that underwear could feel like you're getting a warm hug on your butt. Like you get like a sweater, but and a favorite, you know, sweater hug on your butt. But now I get that. And I, there's no way to go back. There's and I'm making it sound like these are made of like wool or alpaca furs. <laughs> they're, they're not. <laughs> no, no, they're not. Um, although that, you know, hmm, interesting. But no, MeUndies, they are made from their signature tense micro modal fabric. Yes, it is so breathable, stretchy. It's just so soft. It's so comfortable. You feel like you can wear it all day and not feel uncomfortable. Oh, and they have good style too. From solid colors to fun seasonal prints. The prints are so fun. Um, it's It makes it kind of hard to choose. <laughs> oh, it took so much, me forever. Yeah, so much selection, so many different cuts that you can choose from too. And they use sustainably sourced materials. 
Me Undies also has a problem-free philosophy, which is if you're not happy with the first pair, it's on them. Which is so cool. I feel like you would have a hard time being unhappy. I mean, I love mine. Um, like I said, they're so comfortable. I've tried the bikinis. There's it's just like you forget that you're wearing them, you know? Yes. And actually to to add to that is um I uh have purchased the feel free thong. And, um, you know, I'll let you know what kind of guy. I got the end of the rainbow. So it's, uh, they're green with a bunch of shamrocks on them. And it's like a <laughs> pot of gold and some rainbows. Yeah. So I'm wearing that around my butt and it's great. But no, I really cannot feel it. I know there's a lot of people that are like, oh, thongs are uncomfortable. Um, but not from feel, them. Literally feel free thong. Like you cannot feel it. There's no panty lines. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah. And right now to get 25% off your first order plus free shipping, go to meundies.com slash 30mm. That's meundies.com slash 30mm for 25% off plus free shipping. Me Undies, comfort from the outside in. 30 Morbid Minutes is sponsored by BetterHelp. Elise, do you ever have those moments when your brain is basically on a self-sabotage mission? Um, I think the moments when that's not happening are the rare ones. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, I think we both understand each other on that level. But you know what you should do? And maybe you just can't will yourself to do uh, is maybe go to therapy. Yes. And that is actually something I'm working on in therapy is just getting out of my own way. Yes. It's like having your own personal mind detective. (laughs) It is. Like house for your brain, which I guess he was also kind of for brains too. Yeah. No, yeah. But this is different inside. Little man inside your brain helping you figure out what's going on. Oh, for sure. And therapists help you uncover what's been lurking in the mental shadows and holding you back. Yes. So you can finally be your own cheerleader, which is something Jess and I need to be more for ourselves desperately. For that for each other. (laughs) And for each other um, and not our own obstacle courses. For sure. So if you're considering giving therapy a shot, BetterHelp is a great option. They are entirely online, which is super convenient and perfect for fitting into your schedule. Yeah, you just fill out a questionnaire and then they match you with a licensed therapist. And you can switch therapists anytime. Doesn't cost you an extra penny. For sure. Therapy has been absolutely life-changing for me. I feel like I've become a, a different person since going. It is something that I recommend to absolutely everybody. And I think you're a great person. So oh, thank you. But see, I've been going to therapy for three years. Before that, was not a great person. Oh, I disagree. <laughs> I disagree. But I think if therapy had a hand in you, you are such a t- test example to people that like, yes, you should, you should, because you're the best. You're so kind. Well, make your brain your friend with BetterHelp. So visit betterhelp.com slash 30mm today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash 30mm. So I'm going to do my darndest to uh, steer clear of any identifying information. Okay. Uh, That's, you know, that's just the, the nature of healthcare stories. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had a patient who was being treated. um, I should use the term treated loosely. Uh, I had a patient who was in end of life sort of hospice care in their home. Mm. Um, They had just whatever conversations had happened uh, amongst the family and them, their wishes were that they pass peacefully in their own home. Totally normal. Lots of people do it that way. For whatever reason, at the last minute, the family who was present in the home at the time changed their mind and said, we changed our mind. We don't want this individual to die here. Uh, and they called 911 and they said, our, our family member's dying and we want them to go to the hospital. And so we were dispatched. We showed up. Right when you walked in the door of this home, I could hear this really loud snoring noise uh not actual snoring but like somebody trying to breathe with a lot of uh uh blockage it was a struggle yeah like like just that really sort of like loud like i don't know if you've ever found somebody really drunk and passed out and their neck is kind of tilted backwards Mm -hmm. so that their airway is a little bit tight where their throat's like really stretched and just had this really loud snoring going on which is usually not a good sound when you're ems because it, it heavily implies a restricted airway Mm-hmm. Um, so we walk in the front door and my partner and I are both there and we've got the stretcher and we've got some stuff. We kind of don't really know what's going on. Cause again, the information you get when you're dispatched is always suspect 
not that we don't trust the dispatchers, but we don't trust the information given to mm, the dispatchers because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people just don't know how to explain anything. <laughs> I can also imagine, though, if you're trained to deal with this in a calm, collected way, but the person who's making that call Hysterical. is not calm and yeah. collected. Oh, sure. Right? Yeah. yeah. There's We can do an aside about that where we talk about why people are the worst. <laughs> and it's people have such little understanding of their own mm. bodies that mm-hmm. they... Like I've had patients say my stomach hurts and anytime a patient says my stomach hurts, you ask them to point to where it hurts and then they point to their kidneys or their Mm -hmm. liver or their appendix. They don't actually know where their stomach is physically located (laughs) in their body. What they mean is my Mm -hmm. abdomen hurts. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So it's it's really tough to diagnose stuff when the patient themselves is an unreliable Mm -hmm. narrator. And then you throw in things like language barriers. It's like it's a nightmare trying to actually get a good we call it the chief complaint like that's the the reason an ambulance showed up is because somebody had a chief complaint and it's you know nausea or pain or whatever uh, but anyways i can talk about how awful people are at, at self-reporting what's wrong <laughs> with them. because it's, it's it's always a nightmare trying to get good information out of people okay so we walk in snoring respirations are coming from this individual and there's maybe six or seven family members gathered around them and there's also a home hospice healthcare provider. This is a nurse who is assigned to a family and she sort of hangs out and, um, you know, administers drugs, you know, can help with like um, changing if the person's like not ambulatory enough to, you know, like go to the toilet on the, on, mm-hmm. on their own, that kind of stuff. Um, so my partner and I walk in, see this person like struggling to breathe. And so the first thing I did, they were in sort of like a, a, I'm not sure if you've seen those like hospital beds you can order and like have them like mm-hmm. in your house. It's not yeah. like it's not like a full on hospital bed. Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. the wish.com yep. hospital bed. So the first thing we do is we sit this person upright, breathing immediately better because uh, they just were sat upright and not lying flat. And so I kind of pulled this uh, home hospice nurse to the side just to get a quick patient report. It's always great when you have a healthcare provider handing a patient to you because they are equipped with the medical language to accurately <laughs> describe what's going on, like the general public frequently is not and she told me you know everything that was going on this individual was unfortunately not uh didn't have long based on a very long uh battle a prolonged battle with some very metastatic cancer super advanced that had metastasized to like every Mm -hmm. part of their body um and so they just had a ton of morphine on board for pain management which awesome that's that's how i would love to go not the cancer (laughs) part the morphine for pain management yeah not knowing Mm -hmm. what's happening absolutely no pain And when the home hospice nurse was giving me some information about how much morphine the patient had on board, I kind of choked. And because it was a lot, it was a number that was very high. It was a number that was about 10 times more morphine than we stock on an ambulance. Wow. Uh, And the only time I've ever seen the amount of morphine we have on an ambulance actually administered was for bilateral femur fractures because somebody was in very excruciating pain. It was a really bad motor vehicle collision. They broke in both of their femurs. And that's the only time I saw a paramedic be like, we're pushing mm-hmm. all of it. We're yeah. They're getting all this morphine. Mm-hmm. And and this patient in their home had received about 10 times oh that gosh. dose. Jesus. And so my brain kind of starts racing and I'm like, that's very likely a lethal amount of opiate to give to anybody. Now, the the mechanism of action when you overdose on an opiate is that your respirations stop. Um, it is a central nervous system suppressant. So your brain just, you know how you breathe without thinking about it? And then when you think about it, 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 it gets weird when mm-hmm. you're thinking about your breathing. It happens mm-hmm. automatically. Too much opiates suppress that. So your lungs just don't automatically breathe, uh, which is usually what kills people in the event of an opiate overdose. And this person had just been given essentially a lethal opiate overdose. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with Narcan, which is a drug that you can give that basically undoes an opiate overdose. Narcan binds to the opiate receptors in your brain, which just it instantly sobers you up. And I think my, I'm only familiar with it because I think that's what she, in Knives Out she's looking for to give mm-hmm. to yeah. um, Christopher Plummer's yeah. character, I think. Oh, yeah, I have yeah, a quick yeah. question. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. with, sure. So this this nurse gave this person this amount of morphine correct that's mm-hmm. yeah, not that's a correct. is did your like alarm bells ring it with her yeah was, like was the nurse okay like was she allowed to administer this much so here's where things okay. get a little gray uh i'm you know depending on where you i'm sure that there's a lot of there's a lot to be said about you know uh doctor assisted euthanasia and stuff i think that um you know i i don't need to get super into okay. that but 
I'm not going to judge whatever conversations happened privately between that nurse and that family. Uh, they, they knew their loved one's best wishes ahead of time. If that loved one had said, hey, when it's my time, if you can get your hands on a lethal dose of morphine and give that to me, that seems like the coolest way to skate okay. out of here. Mm -hmm. You know, so even if that nurse had intentionally delivered, like regardless of the legality of whether or not that nurse had administered a lethal amount of morphine to this individual, I'm not going to judge that that conversation because it probably happened uh, in an informed way around this patient's wishes. And I think that that should probably be respected regardless of whether or not mm -hmm. the law agrees. But again, I wasn't there. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that this woman violated okay. any law. Um, and I'm not going to insert my outsider coming in for the first time, like healthcare provider perspective. I don't know how much pain this individual was in without mm -hmm. the morphine. You know, I don't know gotcha. how high their doses were normally. That all makes sense. But I do know that that was enough morphine to kill a horse. And unfortunately this person was much smaller than a horse. And so <laughs> it's like a pony. The f yeah. The, the, it was uh, like little Sebastian. Bye-bye. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so my instinct is, all right, let's scoop this patient up, get him on the stretcher, and bring them to the hospital. Now, one really important thing, anytime you have an end-of-life patient, you know, somebody that's on hospice, somebody that's like kind of just like palliative care, like comfort measures only, you always want to make sure that you know whether or not that patient had a do-not-resuscitate order or an advanced care directive a DNR, you know, sort of for, for the listeners at home that don't know, a DNR is a form you go get it signed with a doctor and either the patient or whoever their durable power of eternity is who can, um, I think I might have just said durable power of eternity, which is not what it's called. <laughs> it, it sounds, sounds cool. But it sounds, it sounds way really cooler because cool. they are your, because they are in, in charge <laughs> of eternity for you. Um, so your durable power of attorney or you, you know, they use the DPOA if you're not cognizant or legally like able to sign for yourself. They basically say, here's all the things that we want to have happen for this person medically throughout the rest of their life. So that if you're not around to make that decision, the document will instruct everybody what to do. You can say, hey, in the event that I, you know, enter like a permanently comatose state, I don't want life support measures to keep me alive. I don't want X. I don't want Y. I don't want Z. And you can really specify that stuff. And not enough people, specifically Americans, but not enough people have those conversations early enough where you're very clear about what their wishes are. So... That's like my quick little public service announcement. Have those conversations early and often uh, with people, especially as you age. Um, mm -hmm. And so I asked, I said, hey, does, does the patient have an advanced care directive? And the nurse produced the document. Um, this uh, The state I was in at the time has a very specific document for that state. It's like a bright pink color. And the three things we check for, we need to make sure that it is uh, valid because it's signed only valid up to a certain date and then you have to keep extending it and you need to make sure it's signed by a physician and you want to make sure that the patient name matches the patient name on the document and all three things were present so anytime you have a valid in date physician signed do not resuscitate order that's the only one that you should be honoring and the patient had one and it specifically said this is actually an area where a lot of EMTs fall short uh, not just EMTs but care providers generally don't understand DNR orders very well do not resuscitate order specifically just states if this patient dies, don't try to bring them back. What it what it doesn't say is like let this person die, right? If this person has an issue going on that you can mitigate, mm -hmm. you should mitigate it, right? Once once their heart has stopped, don't push drugs that can get their heart I back. See. Don't start yeah. CPR. Okay. Right. But but if this patient has bad respirations, you should administer oxygen because letting them mm -hmm. die is bad. Bringing yeah. them back once they've died okay. is bad. You want to try to keep them alive and then when they've died, that's it. A lot of people confuse that and, and I've seen a lot of care providers are like, oh, they've got a DNR. Why would we try to keep them alive? And I'm like, because that, that just says don't try to perform necromancy, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So we have a patient who I now know has a lethal dose of morphine on board and they have a valid DNR. So I'm like, okay, cool. This patient wants to pass peacefully with morphine on board, which is what's happening. I'm morally and legally obligated to try to keep them alive. Oh gosh. But the only way I can do that is by giving them Narcan, which will bind to the opiate receptors in their brain, immediately get them unhigh, which mm -hmm. will bring all of the pain that the morphine was supposed to stop rushing back. And morphine binds for a long enough time that they would likely be unable to be pain managed when oh they die. God. So now I'm kind of painted. I was going to say you're in a pickle, right? Like I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to do everything I can to save this person. Uh, but if I do, 
I'm basically just sealing their fate to die painfully. And, and let me ask, because you're with your partner as well. And so do you two have to come to a consensus on what you're doing? That's a great question. Uh, typically, no. Your your partner is driving the ambulance and you are in the back with the patient. It's okay. very rare that you have two care providers in the back. Um, it happens. At, at, I shouldn't say it's rare. It happens enough. But what you usually just have happen is the person in the back runs the call. They call the shots. They do everything they need to do on their own. And you just trust your partner to drive you to the right location. And if you're driving, you trust your partner in the back to provide all the appropriate medical okay. care. Gotcha. Um, so I don't consult with my partner. What I do say is drive fast <laughs> uh, because the hospital is about 15 minutes away, uh, which based on the patient's respirations, I felt was probably going to be cutting it really close to get an alive patient to the hospital. Okay. So I was actually very lucky because I had not technically been certified as an EMT advanced and Narcan was not yet uh, based on the state I was in was not yet a part of my protocol. So I couldn't give them Narcan. We had it on the truck and I knew how to give it. But protocol wise, I was not legally or technically uh, authorized to administer it. So I did not administer Narcan, which in retrospect, I think I, I would have struggled morally to do anyways, based on what I know about this patient's medical Absolutely. history. Because like I said, it would have it would have just stopped opiates from working yep. on them. And they were at end of life in and they had a lot of pain that needed to be managed. And without opiates, that would have been impossible. They would have just died in agony instead of peacefully as their end of life care plan with their family had stated so we just drove fast uh before we left i said the absolute worst few words that an emt or paramedic can say to anybody as i turned to the family and i said don't worry he's in good hands oh Um, no which which this was (laughs) the first time i'd ever had a patient die on me and i i i learned this was a great learning experience for me I know there's a an episode in the first season of Grey. It might be the pilot of Grey's Anatomy where one of the doctors says to a family like don't worry, you know, exact kind of exactly that and yeah. then the patient dies. Yeah. And that's that's the learning lesson there which is you cannot guarantee that for anyone. You certainly never should. Yeah. And that would be, hey, if there's any EMTs listening to this or paramedics, my advice is never tell the family members of the patient you're about to drive off with that the patient's in great hands. You never know what's oh, going to happen. No. Okay. Um, <laughs> So uh, we start driving to the hospital and the family says, we'll follow you. And I say, don't follow too close. Take your time because you don't want them to like, like if we have to run a red light, I don't want them thinking that they're allowed to run a red light. That's not how that works. So as we're driving, I watch this patient's respirations. Now that they're sitting up, they're doing a little bit better. I put them on oxygen. They're doing a little bit better. But then, I mean, the morphine was literally slammed into this guy before we hit the road, like maybe five minutes before we showed up and it starts quickly taking effect and does exactly what I expect it to do. I watched this per- like I'm counting the respirations. I'm watching chest rise and fall looking at the second hand on my watch, which is, you know, very old school, but that's how most EMTs were taught to do it. Um, and the respirations, you know, pretty standard, like 18 a minute, 14 a minute, 10 a minute, four a minute, and then stops. And I just watched this guy die. Before we get to the hospital. Oh. Uh, and there's not a whole lot I can do at that point. I mean, I'm doing everything I can respiration wise to support uh, his airway. Mm-hmm. And he just dies. And to me, it wasn't like a like a soul crushing moment. Like, oh, I just watched my first human being die. I started to think, you know, oh, what's going to happen when we get to the hospital? Well, the hospital. Oh, sorry. I should I should rewind. We weren't on our way to the hospital. We were on our way to a hospice. Uh, house like a hospice house they wanted him to die there oh okay and the hospice house was located pretty closely to a hospital and so i called up our dispatcher and i said hey we're currently transporting the patient we're on the call for he just entered cardiac and respiratory arrest but he has a dnr that's signed so you know there's no resuscitative efforts underway can you call the hospice house and just let him know and he says, oh, I don't think they're going to take a dead guy. Uh, mm-hmm. And I said, well, technically, in this state, I'm not yeah. allowed to pronounce anybody dead. I'm just delivering a patient in full cardiac and respiratory arrest. I'm not delivering a dead guy because he hasn't been pronounced yet. And the dispatcher kind of chuckles. He, and he's like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll ask him. And <laughs> two minutes later, the phone of the ambulance rings again. And he says, yeah, they won't take a dead guy. And I was like, damn it. Uh, <laughs> what, what am I going to do with this dead guy? I tried and then so hard. So cut to. So Sean, then we do a whole weekend at Bernie's. Yeah. yeah, exactly. yeah. 
so then I have to, on the radio, in the ambulance, I have to call the hospital and I have to say, hey, we're inbound to your facility. We've got this patient. They're in full arrest. There's no resuscitative efforts underway. They've got a DNR signed. We were on our way to the hospice house. That facility advised us the patient was no longer appropriate for their facility, suggests that we redirect to your facility. Um, and 99% of the times when you patch into a hospital on the radio and you tell them a patient's coming in, they might not respond, right? They could have something crazy going on in the emergency department and they just don't have time to get to the radio. No response usually means they heard you and they can't get to the radio to tell you that they heard you. So we kind of just show up at the hospital and we back in. And we're not in any rush. I mean, this guy, this guy's not going anywhere. And I distinctly remember cracking open a Dr. Pepper from my brown bag lunch in the back and taking <laughs> right. a swig because I was right. super thirsty. Because you work in the medical field, are you only allowed to drink Dr. Pepper? Yeah. Elise. <laughs> Is that a thing? Walked right into that one. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, Sorry. So I take a nice giant swig. Uh, this, uh, this segment is brought to you by Dr. Pepper. <laughs> uh-huh. And then I hear like an angry knock on the back oh, of the ambulance shit. door. And it's like that. It's like that authoritative cop knock yep. when they're breaking up a college party. Yeah, and you're you like know? a you know the knock. kid, she's yeah. like chugging your Dr. Pepper. Oh, I've got like I've got like my like my like emo hair like swept yeah. back, and it's it's. So I hear that angry, authoritative, angry cop knock, and I look out the back door and I see the entire emergency department <gasps> standing there with like the crash cart. They've got the paddles. Oh my god, they're ready to go. So apparently, the radio in my ambulance cut out it was a pretty old ambulance i calculated the mileage on it the ambulance had been to the moon and back oh wow <laughs> technically it oh had been to the moon and back god and that radio had just as many miles on it so all they heard i'm gonna do my, my like ambulance radio guy voice Th- this is all they heard oh uh, hospital this is uh als unit 17 inbound your facility we have a 62 uh, year old male patient uh who is in full cardiac arrest and oh jeez no. And they didn't hear any of the stuff about the DNR, yeah. no resuscitative efforts underway, chill out. It's just a dead oh, guy coming in. We don't yeah. have to work this. Mm-hmm. So they, they from their point of view, they're like, all right, get the trauma room ready. And then yeah. they see the ambulance like, beep, <laughs> beep, slowly backing in. What the fuck in. is going on? And yeah. then nobody gets out. And they're like, what the heck is going on? And then they go and they look in the back door and here's me <laughs> just drinking a Dr. Pepper. <laughs> Oh, man. Were they like when you opened the door, were they pissed? Like, what the fuck, man? Yeah. Oh, Oh, yeah. Yeah. I had to be like, I had to immediately explain. I was like, you guys didn't catch the last part of that, did you? Okay. Yeah. This this is what's that? I'm fired. Cool. Great. Also, I feel like we had all these follow up questions of like, this is the first death that you encountered on the job. What did that do to you emotionally, Sean, psychologically? But you're cracking open a DP. Yeah. You're totally chilling. chilling. Yeah, we call them, we call them Dicky Peas. Dicky Peas, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I feel like having somebody, and you can you can absolutely you know talk more about this, but like, because that is one of our questions of uh, is like, what was it like dealing with your first death and everything? But I wonder if there is a difference between somebody that you could kind of get a a little hint of like, okay, they he actually wants to go versus somebody that like died in an awful tragic way. Sure. Yeah. And I've had my fair share of those deaths and they certainly shook me more than this one. I I got lobbed. The universe did me a very big solid by lobbing my first death as a real softball. It was <laughs> yeah. very easy emotionally to 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 parse. I wasn't super stressed about it. I didn't go home and drink myself uh, to sleep out of sorrow. It's just because I was like 24. <laughs> um, yeah. So I lucked out. Uh, but mm-hmm. there's certainly uh, a lot of other stories that did not go as well. Um that I'm happy to get into. Oh, we um, want to get into and it. Yeah, you have you have such fascinating stories and you tell them so well and your perspective on them is so interesting. We also want to get into some phil- philosophical questions on like death and the afterlife. And mm-hmm. we talk about death constantly on this podcast. We want to know your, yeah. uh, you've been around it a lot or just people in pain and hurt. Very curious of your yeah. kind of thoughts of that. But we're running out of time. So would you be willing to come back and talk to us more, Sean? Please. No. no. Oh, damn it. Damn, damn it. Elise. Throw my hat down. <laughs> well, we try. Well, we tried. <laughs> we, just, we just hear a, a Coke can pop open, <laughs> soda can pop open. Uh, no, I would love to. This has been super fun. Uh, it's a 
it's a part of my life which, while it is now firmly in my rearview mirror, uh, is still super fun to talk about. I'm very good friends with a lot of my old coworkers. Uh, I still owe you the story about when I had to spring into action a few years ago and be uh, the medical professional on an airplane when they had yes. a sick patient. Oh my god! Um, so I love talking about it. I love swapping old war stories uh, about it, and I'm, I'm I'd be totally down to do it again. This has been a blast. Oh yeah, part two coming soon. Part two. Thanks so much, Sean, for talking with us. Of course. Okay, so many questions left uh, unasked and unanswered. So we're <laughs> yeah. bringing them back next week because there's He's still so many. <laughs> yeah, couldn't and we're, get to them. We're such sick fucks <laughs> that we're like, hey, Sean, we need you to re- relive all this traumatic <laughs> stuff in your past. And can you do it again? Yeah, can you tell us the story, but in detail? I need to know yes. every single gory detail. Please yeah. tell me. But yeah, Sean is great. Um, It was so cool of him to come on. We really appreciate it. And we're so excited that he's going to come back next week and answer more questions. I know. I could have talked to him for like hours. uh, Yeah. But no, yeah, he has some more incredible stories. And then I finally, in our next episode, get to ask him my death questions. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, definitely tune in for that one. Yes. In the meantime... Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We appreciate it. Please continue to review and share it with your friends. It helps us so much. Yes. And then follow us on TikTok. We're, we've been pumping out some some tickers, as I like to call them, <laughs> some tickers, um, on some of the current topics that we're talking about this season. So check that out. Uh-huh. And uh, you know it. You've heard us talk about it ad nauseum. It's been the running gag of the last like six episodes, but it's actually going to happen. <laughs> Watch The Blob 1988 <laughs> because Jess and I are going to do an episode where we just kind of review and revisit and talk about The Blob. No, oh, yeah. And, and you know, it's a cheesy 80s movie. So like invite some friends over, maybe have a couple of drinks, have some fun, have some snacks and just enjoy yourself. I am so excited to watch it because there is an uh, era of like 80s and 90s movies that bring me so much nostalgia and comfort Yep, that I'm so looking forward to an, a new movie of that time. Oh, yeah. 100 percent. Mm hmm. And we have some amazing merch at the Rooster Teeth store. We have our 30 more minutes all over print curiosity shirt. And it's so couple, pretty. It is. It really is. Mm-hmm. And we have our enamel pin, which is one of my favorite things. I, I love mine. I put it in my, I have this little pin box, like a display kind of shadow box mm-hmm. where I have all my kind of morbid, creepy pins mm-hmm. and it's in there. Hell yeah. So thematically appropriate. We also have our cold to the touch hoodie, which is one of my favorite hoodies. And whenever I wear it, people stop me and compliment or ask about it. It's like that turquoise one, Jess. Yep, yep. Love it, love Mm -hmm. it. And our, I mean, this one is perfect for Halloween, even though all of our uh, merch is perfect for Halloween, but the Spirit Board Mm t-shirt, that one is Mm -hmm. one of my all-time favorites. Yep, and our Snake in the Hourglass shirt. Mm -hmm. New one. So cool, too. Yep. Um, But yeah, you can go to roosterteeth.com and check out that merch and also subscribe to First. Yes. Which is the... uh, the way to directly support us. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of perks as well. So if you want, we would also greatly appreciate it too. So mm-hmm. come check it out. Well, Jessica, um, think on what other questions you have for Sean. I have lots. They're coming. Yeah. <laughs> They're spilling out of my brain. Might have to make this one a three-parter. <laughs> well, until next time, Elise. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.